0: As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice, or just as you would be listening
1: to cars going by, or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. This is Billy Hansen, and welcome to another episode of Sauce Talk. Malia Shoji is the lead assistant for Utah Volleyball, a Division I school in the Pac-12 Conference. Malia has been part of one of the most successful stretches in school history, helping to lead the Utah Utes to multiple Sweet 16 appearances. Her husband, Benjamin Kaufman, is an assistant coach for Westminster College Men's Basketball. Before moving to Westminster, Kaufman was the lead assistant at Western Oregon University and Regis University, where he helped both teams reach the NCAA tournament and helped lead Regis to its first conference championship in school history. I played for Coach Kaufman for one season during my senior season, and then I coached with him for two years while I was a graduate assistant. And so I got to see how great of a coach he is, how hard he works, and how much integrity he has as a person. And I also got to spend a lot of time with Malia, seeing how great of a person she is too, and from a distance, followed her career and seeing how successful she's been as a coach. So in this podcast, I felt like I had the opportunity to talk to two great coaches who are also married and trying to pursue their dreams of being coaches and balancing their passion for helping young people while also trying to set up their own young family. We also touch other topics. We talk about the importance of networking and how that can be done the right way and the wrong way. We talk about what they look for in new recruits, red flags that they see in new recruits and things that they like. We talk about Ben and Malia's quote unquote meet cute, which was a term that I hadn't heard until Malia brought it up, but it's an adorable story. And some of the unique challenges of the modern athletic environment. So without further delay, here is Malia Shoji and Benjamin Kaufman. Malia Shoji and Benjamin Kaufman, welcome to Sauce Talk.
0: Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having
2: having
1: us. us. Yeah. So I want to walk through both of your backgrounds briefly they um, will start with Malia. Malia, where did you grow up and what sports did you play as a kid?
0: So I grew up in a coaching family. My dad coached volleyball, so we lived um, a few different places. I lived in Indiana, Iowa, and then the majority of my childhood was in Colorado. Hmm. And growing up, I did gymnastics to start and they actually told me I was too tall. So I stopped and I started playing volleyball um, and then I stopped growing, of course. But then in high school, I also played golf and tennis.
1: Okay, nice. And then when did you ultimately know that volleyball was going to be your path?
0: So, not until I started my master's, um, I think a year or two out of college. Hmm. And I started my master's as a graduate assistant. And that's hmm. when I really fell in love with coaching. But I was coaching actually all the way. Um, You know, while I was in college still, I was coaching club teams. And then just out of college, I coached high school and club teams. And I was pretty adamant that I was never going to be a coach for my career path. Mm. Um, But then lo and behold, uh, after Western Oregon, I definitely found it as my calling. So I'm glad that that I found it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So where did you play in college?
0: So I played at a junior college for two years at Irvine Valley College in Orange County. Okay. And then I stopped playing after that. And that's when I really got into coaching.
1: Okay. And what was your what, what do you think why do you think you were adamant about not becoming a coach before you changed your mind?
0: So growing up, I just saw a lot of the challenges. and I think you know going out coming out of college, I just wanted stability, and I didn't like the idea of having to move a ton of times um, after having done that a lot in my childhood. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely thought that, you know, a career in business or something where I could see myself staying geographically in the same place was really appealing.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating. I want to get back to that. Let's move quickly to Benjamin. So where did you grow up? And actually, I actually have never asked you this. What was your playing career like? What sports did you play in your youth?
2: So grew up in uh, Buffalo Grove, Illinois, a northwest suburb of Chicago. Uh, And, uh, you know, I played basketball in high school, Uh, was very average, Um, but uh, it was still my best sport compared to uh, played a little bit of baseball and soccer. Uh, So um, didn't think anything about coaching Uh, when I went to college, thought I was done after high school with basketball, uh, but got fortunate enough, my brother was coaching and my older brother's a couple years older. I came back from college over a Thanksgiving break. He was coaching a travel basketball team, and I just helped out and fell in love with it immediately, just the competition and being able to work with you know, some younger kids and help them improve their skills. So that's, For sure. that's how I got started.
1: And you were in the private sector before you made your first jump into coaching. What were you doing before when you first left college? What were your first jobs like?
2: So first job out of college, um, because I studied business at the University of Iowa, was uh, in finance. So I worked for a subsidiary of Staples, um, so office supply company called Quill. And I was an analyst for them for actually seven years uh, and probably two or three months into that job uh, before I needed something to do, uh, you know, after work. And then that's when I started doing coaching part-time. Um, but I had, you know, full-time job was in that private sector, um, you know, finance and business for, for seven years before uh, I decided to go full-time and kind of, you know, stop sticking my toe in the water and just go for it. Yeah,
1: so what made you ultimately jump in?
2: Uh, well, y- y- you just kind of... days go by you get a little bit older you start to think about kind of your I don't know I guess place in society and what your legacy will be I don't know deep thoughts maybe uh, as deep as you can have um, at at that age mid-20s and just wanting to do more and kind of just help others I felt like you know, if if you help others grow or improve on a skill set or whatever they're doing in their life, then uh, your impact kind of goes on longer after you're gone. Um, and then, uh, I kind of what really got me and pushed me out the door was uh, my mom at the time had gotten sick, and she um, she was in education, and you know just knowing how fulfilled she got for working, you know, in the Chicago public school system, um, you know, working with just different teachers and different students from different backgrounds. Um, she loved it and it was something that she thought that I should pursue. Um, so, you know, timing wise, it was just uh, time to kind of move on and um, go for it.
1: Yeah. So it was that curious about that, um, that transition. So, when you were you thinking about it for years while you're working in the private sector? Obviously working in the private sector as an analyst offers more security, job stability, less of an unknown. But it was it something like you felt like you're getting a lot more meaning and fulfillment out of helping people? And it finally took your mom getting sick in order to give you that kind of clarity to ultimately jump in. Like were there years before you made the decision that you were considering it? And then you, before you finally made the decision,
2: it was very gradual. I think when I started coaching, um, you know, travel basketball and AU, and then for the high school that I went to, I did not think that it would end up being a career uh-huh. uh, at the beginning. And then it, I just fell in love with it more and more and more. Uh, and I, I enjoy uh, the analytical work and working. Where I did, I worked with, you know, great bosses and great co-workers, so I, I didn't hate my job. Uh, it just got to the point where, gra- I think it was just gradual over time, um, where, you know, I just saw more and more value in helping others. Um, so, yeah, you know, that, that's that's kind of how it happened.
1: For sure. Okay, and then I have to ask, how did you, how did you guys meet and fall in love? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Do you yeah, want to go uh, our meet
1: cute?
2: <laughs> our meet cute, um, I, I think at the copier, um, at Western Oregon, the, the um, we both ended up there at the same time. It's a small town, uh, which was really my winning strategy, uh, for making <laughs> uh, Malia fall in love with me was give her no other options, uh, in the town. It's it's about it's a great, great college town, but it's very small, one stoplight. About 9,000 people. A lot of them are students. What town so, is it again? Monmouth, Oregon. That's and right. It's, it's and it's a great, you know, Willamette Valley, great place. It's hour from the coast, hour from Portland. So it's not, you know, on the middle of nowhere. Um, there are things around it. It's just small in that area. Uh, so um, I just, we became friends first because I think we both were just desperate for some sort of friendship, companionship um, right off the bat. Uh, so we just kind of met in the hallway and, um, we were friends for a year, which is really the best way to do it. Um, and I just fell more and more in love and then finally went for it. So So I had
0: no clue that he liked me (laughs) for the longest time.
2: Plenty cool. Plenty cool.
1: (laughs) Nice. Okay. And how did that, what I have to drill down here. I, I apologize for putting you through this, but what was, How did you get to the first date? How did that end up? Malia, if you want to answer this.
0: So, uh, we were, like Benjamin said, we were just hanging out a ton as friends and you know, our only social outlet. And then all of a sudden my players kept saying, I think he likes you. You should go on a date with him. I think he likes you, you know? And so they're, they're credited as well here. Um, But I remember there was like two incidents, that I don't know if they count as our first dates, but he, Brought me soup when I was sick once, and I thought, oh, well, that was really nice. It was above and beyond our just normal hanging out on, like, a weekend. Mm. And then before my one of my matches, he asked if he could take me to grab some food, and it was just the two of us. And you, before then, it was just, the, there was another girl in the town, and so the three of us were all hanging out as friends. And so when he asked me just the two of us, I thought, okay, this this might be a date. So it was, a <laughs> nice. uh, yeah, nice. a bar in, in Monmouth before my match.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Remind me, Malia, were you, how, what, at what stage was Western Oregon for you? What what kind of, were you the lead assistant there?
0: Yeah, so Western, so I was actually, I was volunteering at Willamette just before that and then I became the grad assistant and so there was only um, a part-time kind of uh, assistant that was paid through a GA stipend Uh, but by the time I left they had made the position full-time so Okay. I kind of went through a transition while I was there.
1: Okay, cool. And then, Malia, did you, where did you go from Western Oregon? Were you, were you immediately to Utah? By the way, I'm going to introduce both of you uh, in the intro to this podcast. So people will know what kind of success you've had at Utah. But was there a step between Western Oregon and Utah?
0: No. So, like I said, Western Oregon was really where I decided I wanted to pursue coaching and, you know, de- not having to deal with high school parents or club parents and all the politics that come along with those um, two levels, I really was, you know, excited about pursuing the next level. Um, and so I, I actually sent out a ton of applications for kind of mid-major D1 assistant positions, and I didn't hear anything back. Um, and then after I basically decided I was going to stay at Western Oregon another year, um, you know, through my family, Beth had told my dad that he she was looking for an assistant, and he mentioned my name. And so she reached out to me. Um, and it was funny, because at the same time, her assistant had just gotten a head job at Montana State. And so I was interviewing for both those positions at the same time. Um, and I really I just thought, you know, it, it was such a, a big leap to go from a division to school like Western Oregon. So I just thought, well, it's such a great experience to go interview, but there's no way I'm getting it. Um, and then I got the call from Beth, and she offered me the job. So it was
1: nice, pretty nice. exciting.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. And what what do you think? Was there a moment or something that happened, or a mind state shift? Do you remember when you initially started? To, was it a gradual shift or an immediate shift? When did you ultimately decide that coaching might be your ultimate path?
0: Um, it was a gradual shift, I'd say. I think there's something really special about. Um, pursuing my education and having all of my, you know, courses and projects that I was doing for my master's revolving around our team. So Mm -hmm. I was studying and trying to solve problems that I was seeing with our team and, you know, with motor learning and trying to teach our athletes um, and technology and all these different components that make up coaching now. Um, And it really just it really just made me, um, I think, find a new passion for coaching. Cause before I was doing it because I had played and mm-hmm. it was just a side gig. And now all of a sudden I was kind of, um, you know, more fulfilled from an intellectual standpoint and just trying to problem solve. Um, and so I think that's when it really became evident that it was more of a passion that I was going to carry out through my career.
2: Okay. For sure. Uh, and did- if I can interject uh, yeah. real mm-hmm. quick, kind of a funny story. Um, <laughs> Before we started dating, um, and I had never seen Malia play volleyball at that point. I knew she had played uh, growing up. I I hadn't seen any of her practices. Uh, I, I was just walking past the gym randomly, and she was behind the service line, and she was throwing the ball up, and she was just, I mean, it didn't even clear the net. And I was like, "What? what is going on? Like... She can't play at all, and <laughs> later I find out. Later I find out she was trying to teach herself to serve lefty, and I didn't know righty or lefty. I didn't know you know how she played volleyball at that point. It was kind of early on, and she was just it was part of her moner learning master's degree. She was trying to teach herself a new skill set uh, and, and gain some insight. So I just thought that was kind of uh, funny. I just and you still reading, asked her, you well. still asked
1: her out on a date. That's so uh, noble of you. Oh, well, it was
2: the wisest thing I've ever done. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's funny. Uh, So, did your father influence you at all? Did did he want you to become a coach or did he just kind of leave you alone to decide on your own?
0: You know, it's funny. My uncle is also a longtime um, head coach. And so both my dad and my uncle, when I got into coaching, were like, are you sure? I don't think you should do that. <laughs> <laughs> and even still to this day, you know, our, we kind of joke that the advice in our family is, you know, don't get into coaching and don't marry a coach. And so I'm 0 for 2 on that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So I want to – you said that you moved quite a bit in your childhood, Malia, and that was – I assume that was because your dad was taking different coaching positions
0: Correct.
1: Okay. So you both now have a newborn child. Congratulations. I'm curious how your experience growing up in a coaching family is informing how you're mapping out your coaching career. So I guess let me ask a more specific question to start. What was it like moving um, when your dad was taking new jobs? Were you you know, I grew up in one town. I was, I never knew anything other than my small town. So I have a very different experience. What was it like having to make new friends, play on new teams, move around the country? Was that a difficult thing in your childhood?
0: Yeah, it was pretty like in the, in the moment, I just remember it being pretty traumatic and it wasn't, you know, meeting new friends was, it was always, it always came pretty easy, but I think the hardest part for me was leaving behind the great, friends and the communities that we become a part of so with mm-hmm. athletics you know you just you basically become an extended family with the people that you know coached with my dad or the other people in the athletic department and, some. and so i think every every time that i found out we were leaving i think that was the hardest part it was it was leaving the people behind not necessarily the fear of making new friends and the new yeah. experiences because when you get there it's the same exact great environment but draws you to collegiate athletics. You know, it's the community feel. So it was definitely hard. Um, And, you know, now, so that was like me being a kid and now having a child, I think of all the benefits and being around the program and having Cameron even coming to practices now and getting to see all these people and meet all these people and have these diverse experiences. I just see it as such a benefit. Um, And it's definitely, definitely shifted my perspective on, uh, the fears that I had going into coaching initially.
1: Okay, cool. And Benjamin, how has having your first child changed the way you think about your own path? So now you're back working in the private sector and coaching part-time, correct?
2: Correct. Yeah. And you have um, planned,
1: you want you plans to stay around the game, but you're, you know, now balancing the trade-offs between the coaching path and, uh, you know, providing for a family, is that right?
2: Yeah, it's just also with COVID going on, uh, I thought, uh, you know, we, we discussed Malia and I, just all the factors that go into travel uh, and then being able to, uh, you know, childcare care uh, for Cameron, not really wanting to have to put her at a daycare. So it just seemed like a, a good time to, you know, just, Get back into the you know business world, uh, but also still coach a bit. Um, so I'm kind of doing both at, at the moment, um, and that was just like you said, you know, provide a little bit more, but also some stability um, with scheduling. You know, with two coaches having a season at the same time, and then perhaps being on road trips at the same time. You know, I, with with a you know newborn becomes very difficult to plan that way. So um, that was just kind of what we had decided. and It's going really well so far.
1: Nice, nice. And um, either one of you can pick up on this, but how are you thinking about the long-term future in terms of trying to balance? And I hope that this question will inform young athletes who are thinking about getting into coaching, who also want to have a family. Um, I'm also very interested in these questions too, but what are you thinking about long-term in terms of trying to navigate a coaching path and start a family um, when you both are in coaching. I can imagine that, you know, just based on what I know in the in the coaching realm, is sometimes this job promotion can move you to a better coaching position, but in a town that you might not like as much, um, and vice versa. So, how are you thinking about navigating your coaching career from this point forward? And either one of you can pick up yeah. on that.
0: That's a big crossroads that we've actually run into now the last couple years and for me it's do i want to take the next step and become a head coach uh-huh. and before having cameron it was something that um, i was delaying more to be ready to be a head coach and making sure that um, i was prepared to do that um, but now just this past year when i was pregnant with cameron we had more job opportunities come up and it wasn't about me being ready as much as is this going to be the right move for us starting a family and is all the growing pains of becoming a head coach and the growing pains of becoming a new mom really what i want to tackle all in the same year Mm -hmm. and so we decided uh, that we were going to delay that and try and just focus on you know figuring out life with a newborn like Benjamin said and then take on the the Challenge of becoming a head coach in the future, um, and so for us, you know, we like just like you said, we were looking at opportunities that were not necessarily the towns that we really wanted to maybe raise our daughter in, and now looking at um, a head coaching position, looking at more of a five-year commitment, hopefully, than just a one, two, three-year assistant coaching position, um, and those can turn over quickly. So, yeah, I think that's it's definitely making us a little bit more selective. Um, but at the same time, you know the benefits of becoming a head coach also are great. So even if we might be in a city that's not as ideal, we have more autonomy with our schedule. You know, we have um, the idea that we're moving our careers forward. So that that's also weighing heavy on our mind.
1: For sure. So before we move away from kind of the trade-offs between um, or the difficulties in navigating a. A fulfilling career in coaching along with starting a life and a family do you have any advice you would give to a young person who's interested in coaching but also wants a family I know you both are figuring it out as you go but um Malia would you give the same advice that your dad gave st- stay away at all costs <laughs> or uh, um, <laughs> what do you guys how would you advise someone who is considering pursuing coaching if they also wanted some stability in their family life
0: Right. Um, Well, so I heard this actually from a female head coach in our profession that I respect tremendously. And she, she offered the advice of just become the best coach that you can, especially when you don't have a family yet. Hmm. And instead of worrying about it along the way, just become as good as you can at your craft, at coaching, at all the things that go along with coaching, and then land yourself in a position where the people around you are willing to support The growing pains of you having a family and i think that that really holds true for myself personally um i'm in a great program i feel like i invested you know everything i had before i had children into you know becoming the best i could be and then the program around me now is so supportive of cameron and you know the different challenges that i'm kind of going through as i learn how to balance becoming a mom especially during a pandemic and um also still trying to be the best coach that I can be. So I definitely think that advice of not, you know, meeting trouble halfway and just becoming the best you can. So that way people are willing to be forgiving of the family dynamics when it comes.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. How about you, Benjamin? Do you have anything to add to that?
2: You know, I love the competition of athletics, college athletics. um, And I love, you know, being able to work with you know, a wide range of uh, young people, young adults and help them grow. But what about you know your family? If you're thinking about it, it, it when you're starting a family and you're getting into coaching uh, before the family part, yeah, you can go out, travel to any town, move, um, have no job security, you know, that could be tough for some, but it, it's a lot easier without a family. So um, as soon as, you know, you fall in love, you, you meet the person of your dreams, Uh, then it's all a balancing act. And I think being flexible is really important. Um, You know, college basketball is fantastic. There's a lot of pros. Um, There are some cons. But being able to fit in in um, different spaces. So, you know, if we end up in a different location and there's not a college job, well, can you do high school? Can you do some trainings to kind of stay in the game, keep your act sharp? Uh, for potentially a, a different opportunity that comes along in the future, so that's a little give and take. And I think Malia's hit it on the head; she, you know, killed it uh, here at the University of Utah at a high level. Um, and I think we just have some flexibility now to be selective um, at our, you know, next location or however long we stay here.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. And I know you both made sacrifices and. In- When I was coaching with Benjamin, um, you guys were long distance, living apart, and living on limited means and building up your coaching resume before you got into the family life. So um, I think that's good advice. Yeah, I
0: think Benjamin's point's really solid, especially for people who are both coaches. Like if you're in a relationship where you're both coaching, I think Benjamin's advice is really important because the odds of you finding both your dream jobs in the same city at the exact same time are so unrealistic, so yeah which a lot of people do (laughs) in our profession
2: yeah when when i started a piece of advice that i would give anybody who's starting to coach is just ask any other coach the same question like what's the most important like what advice do they have I, i did that early on and i got some great advice wide range of you know, what's most important for to be an assistant coach and, uh, you know, to work for this person or at this level uh, and just got great words of wisdom. But um, something that I was told to be a coach, you know, whoever you end up with has to understand the coaching profession. Um, And if they don't, it's going to increase a lot of friction over the years. So, you know, think about that when you're, you know, choosing who to be with and if the profession is worth it.
1: Yeah. How much time have you both spent, um, focusing on networking? I, I just feel like there's, I mean, in everything you do, the, the who, you know, factor seems to matter a lot, which is unfortunate to people who like me, who, who want just your performance to be what matters. But I think that in a lot of industries or, or pursuits or goals, you do kind of have to play the game and schmooze a little bit and try to get your name out are both are you both spending any significant energy in that space do you think you should should be spending more in that space or less or do you really think it's just about developing the skill set obviously if you're not a good coach you're not going to get it go anywhere but is that an important aspect in your mind of getting your name out with the right people
0: yeah i definitely think it is um but I don't think me personally. I don't spend as much time doing that as I need to. Um, one thing at my crossroads of wanting to become a head coach in the near future, a lot of advice that I got was networking with athletic directors and mm. not just my peers, because those are going to be the people that are going to give me my next job. Um, mm. Obviously, to have flexibility and options, like if I ever wanted to move somewhere. Well, let's say Benjamin got a great job and we need to be in a different city. I also, you know, need to know people for. For that reason as well, other coaches. Um, but one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is I need to start networking more with younger coaches um, that I would want to be, you know, candidates for my assistant positions. Right. And you, you spend so much time, you know, thinking about your next position and the people that you need to impress. But I also think you need to impress um, and kind of recruit almost uh, younger coaches or other coaches that you would want to work with you.
1: Yeah, for sure. Anything else to add to that, Benjamin?
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree with Malia's last point that it's a wide range of different positions within programs and athletic departments uh, and roles because you just never know. I think you know, big thing for for basketball is going to like the Final Four and first couple of years. Uh, you know, you're walking around and you see some people you've only seen on TV that you know, big names. And it's like, oh, man, if I can impress that person. But it, it's really your peers that are your age, you know, and, and that are going to be around for a while. Um, and if you're in the role of support staff on a, on a program, you know, you're a manager or a video coordinator, like connecting with other managers and video coordinators because you have a lot more to talk to talk about, too. Um, and, and just keeping up with them. This profession, coaching, um, I don't know if it, it's the most Uh, in terms of professions that that needs networking, but it's got to be up there because it's very difficult. Uh, I mean, there's not a lot of jobs, so it's highly competitive and it's, it's, you know, they don't get to see your work uh, necessarily. Um, They don't get to see exactly your day-to-day, your future bosses. So uh, connecting with them in and out of season um, when you're competing against them uh is, is really key. And that's something, you know, I got a great piece of advice from um a mutual coaching friend of Billy uh and mine, Dan Snyder, said, you know, I as a competitive person, I didn't like the other coaching staffs uh that we would compete against in our conference to begin with. You know, they're they're they got what I want. You know, I want to win and they're in our in, in my way, uh in our way. So uh but those are the easiest ones to connect with. And uh, I think that was a great lesson. So connect with everybody um, and, and do it the right way. Don't do it sleazy. I mean, there are, you go to recruiting events and you see guys who don't even watch um, their potential recruits. And all they're doing is just moving from one coach to the next to try to connect with them. So uh, I think that looks, it's a bad look. And hopefully um, that, that gets noticed. So you got to be both you know, good at your job and, and networking for sure in this profession
0: right and you mentioned conventions billy and i just don't like conventions as much either because i feel like they're like benjamin mentioned like the recruiting tournaments where you you know that they're there for that sole purpose of just trying to meet as many people and you know it kind of has that sense of like how can you help me um and how can you know we help each other kind of and i just i miss the opportunities that i used to get at west Oregon to like work with other people. So at Western Oregon, I had to work camps all summer long to supplement my salary. And you know, now that I'm at Utah, I almost can't do that because I have to recruit all summer long. And working uh, random camps with random coaches, you meet so many new people. Um, and like Benjamin said, like different people in different roles. Um, it's just definitely a, an opportunity I miss to connect with other coaches and actually see how they work and work with them. For
2: and for sure. And uh, just to add a little bit, um, if you're networking and while you're networking, all you're thinking about is what's what you're going to get out of the situation, then that's how you're going to be as a coach, uh, right. which, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's about giving and helping, you know, the student athlete, you know, succeed and grow um, and not about you getting wins and moving on in your career. If that's what it's all about, you know, you're in the wrong profession. There's a lot of people like that. But, you know, my opinion, you're in the wrong profession and you're not in it for the right reasons. And eventually it'll, it'll be found out. So, um, if you're in it networking for the right reasons to connect and help others, um, and kind of grow with them, then, you know, it'll pay off and you'll do it the right way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Both of you just made, I think, and that transcends the coaching world, but there's something, I've something off-putting about even the term networking to me. Like it's, Like you're going, like it's built, baked into the word and into the intention that you're going out with some agenda to try to, you know, get your name in front of the right person. And it's very, um, yeah, I just think that in order to actually make the kind of connection that's going to matter, you do have to bring a sense of like a real genuine curiosity. And like you said, Benjamin service to the other person. And I like to think, and hopefully this is true that, a few really solid connections where you really build trust does more than, you know, 20 very surfacey connections where you connect on LinkedIn and say, you know, nice video. <laughs> like, uh, or if you're just trying to spray this really wide net, but you have you kind of bring with you a stench of an agenda, I, I somehow suspect that that won't take you as far as really trying to make connections and be of service and connect with people on a more personal level. So... Yeah, yeah sure. not
2: yeah. Yeah, not a thousand, you know, average relationships. You want a few great ones. And then I think you, you know, I kind of hear it in your voice a little bit. Uh Billy, it, it, it and I had it too at the beginning of networking, and I got to get over it every time that I'm in those positions is don't think about the people who do it the wrong way or the dirty side of it mm-hmm. because then you can kind of slow yourself down from doing it the right way. So if you kind of kind of just Right. Just focus on how you do it the right way and, and stick around others and don't focus on kind of the negative side of it. It, it can help you uh, get over some of that uh, phobia for me and for others, I think.
1: Yeah, that's, that's good advice because the phobia is real and it does hurt you if I can get into that space where oh, I'll just, you know, I'll just do my own thing, do it myself. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't work either. I want to take a quick pause from the conversation to tell you about my book, which is being released on March 26th, 2022. The book is titled Harder Than I Thought, Easier Than I Feared, with the subtitle Sports, Anxiety, and the Power of Meditation. And the book covers a lot of the topics that I explore here on the podcast. It's about my journey from youth sports through college athletics, and from growing up into adolescence and young adulthood, from recruiting to my expectations leaving high school, to the mental difficulties that I experienced as a college athlete, And how the practice of meditation and other behavioral and philosophical changes helped me reframe my college athletic experience and ultimately helped me set up a more productive and happier life after sports. So if you're interested in these topics and you want to support me in my work, you should consider pre-ordering the book. You can find the link at billyhansonnet forward slash book or search for it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you shop for your books. You can also get it in audiobook format, which I read myself, and I appreciate the support. Quickly, another way to support my work is to review the podcast, so please, if you feel inclined, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for your support. Okay, I want to pivot to another topic. So both of you have been in charge of recruiting, so I figured it'd be a good opportunity to ask you some questions, and maybe some young players who listen to this might get some insight from people who are on the other side of that dynamic. So first question, maybe we can start with Malia. When, you, when you're recruiting beyond the talent and the potential as a player and the fit in your program, which I know those things are paramount when you're looking for a player who's gonna actually, you know, help you win games. What kinds of other things do you look for in a player when you recruit them in terms of personality, the way they present themselves, how they communicate? Are there any specific things that you're looking for? when you communicate with potential recruits?
0: Yeah, two things um, that we've identified, especially for our conference um, in particular, um, is they need to be very competitive and they need to be confident. You know, we play great teams every night and there's a good chance that you might, you know, get your butt kicked one night and have to turn around um, in another day and have to compete again. And so can they have that confidence to compete again, and then also the competitiveness of wanting to get better all the time. We really like to find athletes that have goals beyond just their four years at Utah. You know, we don't want them to be so excited that they got their college scholarship and that's kind of where their their end of their motivation lies. Um, I found that when they have goals of, whether it's playing overseas, playing um, in the USA system, any sort of goals that go beyond their time with us, it's helpful. To help that motivation throughout their career
1: cool yeah and so how do you how do you detect genuine confidence when you're interacting with a player is it something that you watch and tape that you can see their demeanor and adversity is it how they describe themselves as a player what are the kind of indicators that show true confidence in a recruit
0: um something we look for is their relationship with failure so when they talk about failures are they using them as learning opportunities, are they something that they use to drive them forward in their, their endeavors or do they shy away from it? Do they, do they kind of not even like to talk about them? Um, you know, someone who says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really working on my sharp angle shot, you know, and I just can't get it. It's you know, something that I've been working on and I'm doing X, Y, and Z to get better at it. You know, that's something where we know that they kind of have a, they have a healthy relationship with failing to try and get that improvement but mm. players who you know like, I just never can do that and you know I, I like attacking line because I'm just more comfortable line. you know I'm a line attacker that's my deal. Mm. Um, you know kind of that fixed mindset we just we just feel like it doesn't it doesn't breed that confidence to grow. And so it's not just this self you know this arrogance or um, kind of conceitedness in their own performance. it's about what they're willing to do to get better for sure
1: yeah that's great. How about you, Benjamin?
2: Well, I'll just make the point and not to get back into our uh, how our relationship started, but uh, <laughs> just listening to Malia talk about coaching, uh, I think was huge between both of us. I think that that kind of grew our relationship so much. So I learn more and more uh, still to this day after, you know, eight years of a relationship, uh, um, you know, new tidbits. Uh, so it's extremely helpful to, to be in a relationship with with uh, another successful coach. So um, what I would add, I guess, for, for coaching at this level, at the college level, it's like so many games are decided by a few possessions in college basketball that, you know, what's going to be the determining factor, uh, and it's, it's a term that people use like grit or toughness that's harder to define, but you kind of just see it uh, if you know where to look. And you have to look at uh, those tough situations that, that players are put in, uh, after either failure or extreme competition or extreme coaching, you wanna see how a potential recruit does under pressure because at high school, at the high school level or AAU level, there's so many games and a lot of blowouts um, just because the the difference in talent is, is a lot wider um, at that level. Then when you get higher level, higher level, higher level, I mean, the stakes get higher, there's more pressure, uh, there's, you know, more important games, uh, for your season and they're, they're just closer games. Um, so how does that player react? So I think something that I like to do is, you know, don't just take the game film that gets sent to you, which is their best game against the worst team in their conference. It's figure out who the best team in their conference is, uh, their biggest rival, you know, on the road and try to get that film and assess. And it doesn't mean just because they underperform their average, uh, that, that, Necessarily means that, you know, they're a failure and, and cut them off the list. But you got to look for those situations um, when they're getting coached hard or after a turnover, things like that, to, to determine who has that grit or toughness uh, that you're looking for.
1: Nice, nice. And what about red flags? Are there things that would make you pull someone off of your recruiting list?
2: Uh, for, it's an interesting profession, like recruiting unlike almost any other job, we get to pick who we get to work with for the next four years. You know, you you, you end up at a company, uh, it's whoever's there, whoever gets hired before or after you. So it's, it's, it's interesting when recruiting, I like to look and see who do I want to be around. Uh, and yeah. if they just have a bad attitude or it's about them, you know, when things are going right, it's because of them. When things are going wrong, it's because of others. You know, you can train some of that um, and you want to see if they've never had a coach that's really coached that for them. You know, if they've just never had a coach that challenged them, uh, then maybe they just need that. Um, so it's case by case. And there's always, you know, special circumstances that, that you know, just not a hard, and fast rule. But if if they're just they just don't look like they're fun to coach uh, because they just take things the wrong way. They just take coaching poorly. Um, and they're not about their team. They don't make the extra pass. I mean, that's just, you know, things that are red flags that, you know, I don't want to have to deal with, um, for four years potentially. So, yeah. Anything to add to that? A big
0: red flag. Yeah. A big red flag for us that I look for is, um, the way the parents approach the Recruiting process. So there's the parents that you know are driving it, and they're the ones calling all the time. They're the ones sending the emails. Hmm. Um, I talk to them more than I talk to the player. Uh, And then there's, you know, you're in the conversation with them and face to face, and the the player's looking at the parent every time before she answers. So
1: it's just that, to me,
0: that, you know, that lack of confidence. And like, I don't know if it's her dream to play at this level or if it's her parents' dream. Um, and I definitely think that there's an important relationship that needs to be built with the parents because they absolutely need to be part of the process. They need to trust that their daughters are going to be in good hands and that they, you know, their daughters are going to be shaped and molded by the coaching staff for the next four years. So you do want to make sure that you know what you're getting into, but I think it's a completely different relationship that is built than the one with the recruit and we're going to be talking with their crew once they get to you know our campuses and that relationship needs to start, I think in the recruiting process. So if they're not um, at least initiating some of the communication, if they're not kind of carving out their own path to having a relationship with us, that's a big red flag.
1: Yeah, that's really good practical advice, I think. And I could imagine when you think about the, the stakes that for a young athlete, a young person, You know, there's all the status and the the pride that comes with, especially in your situation, Malia, playing for a school like Utah, going D1. That's like a life-changing offer that someone could get. Um, And then beyond that, just how devastating student loans have become. And so trying to get a scholarship is also a life-changing event for for these families. So I can understand the tendency for a parent to try to Micromanage and helicopter their child into the situation that they want them to be in, but I also, I, yeah, the way you describe that, I think it's comp, might be really off-putting if if the athlete themselves has no real skin in the game, or you aren't you aren't actually getting their personality through the process. That's that's fascinating,
0: right? And I mean, it's all about a sustained relationship too. So I mean, you might the parents might get the athlete the scholarship, right? They might have said all the right things, coached them to say all the right things. um, But how do you really know if it's the right fit for them? How do you really know if you really are hitting on all the things that this athlete wants in their experience if they aren't given the space to reflect and ask questions and sometimes say the wrong things to coaches? And that's kind of how you get to know each other and making sure that there is a true fit there. And it's not just You know the i secured the scholarship like you said all this pressure is off my you know shoulders now and then a year down the line you're ending up transferring because it's just a completely wrong fit
1: yeah for sure for sure uh okay what is something and i don't care who goes first here i guess we can start with malia what what is something you've changed your mind about in terms of your coaching philosophy since you started off you know if you can think of something specific like you you had an opinion or a philosophy or a conviction that you've done a 180 on or a 150 on or something close to it like a you've something that you've changed your mind on and why can you think of anything like that
0: yeah um so for me i i really appreciate structure and consistency and having routines and something that's predictable i find that really comforting and so for a lot of the times I was thinking my athletes, you know, I do right by them, by having those things with them all the time. Right. And one thing that I've been challenged with at Utah is sometimes giving them just the space where I'm not structuring everything for them. I'm not, you know, they have to kind of flounder a little bit and they have to not get the answers black and white. um, and they have to kind of struggle with some ambiguity at times and allowing them to grow in those, in those opportunities. Um, don't get me wrong. I still think that the majority of the time that is our job is to create structure for them to develop within. Um, mm-hmm. But I've I feel like I've I've really opened up to the idea that the probably the biggest life lessons and the biggest growing opportunities are sometimes when I step back and allow them to to have to struggle within obviously safe spaces, but um, just not getting all the answers all the time.
1: That's really interesting. Does that so does that apply to a drill, like you're, you're setting up a certain kind of drill and rather than giving them the correct technique, you're letting them work through it. Or is it, we're not having study hall today. You have to figure out when to do your homework. How does that look? It can be,
0: yeah, I think, I think it applies in both those contexts. You know, I think in, you know, in the gym, especially they want to be told exactly, oh, my foot needs to be at a 45 degree angle. And you know, not every athlete moves the same way. And so sometimes giving them space to just be athletic and move the way that their body moves, but still understanding the outcome is the you know, desired outcome we're looking for is that you are squared above the net at contact if you're blocking the ball. Um, but how every athlete gets to that point might be a little bit different. So being a little bit flexible with that. Um, you know, one one thing in motor learning that I studied a while ago is external focuses and just the idea that your body is this, you know, system that you you really override the system when you're trying to say, all right, I want your hand to be facing out at this angle. And then I want you to have your wrist snap at this angle at contact. And now all of a sudden when I'm going to hit the ball, I'm like thinking about my body and I'm really overriding the system when really, if I gave them an external focus and said, hey, I need the ball to get hit shallow, more shallow in the court. I need it to be hit more like the 10 foot line than at the end line. Now all of a sudden my wrist would have to snap at a certain angle to get that outcome. And so all of a sudden I'm just letting the system kind of figure out how to get there. So that's that's an in the gym kind of example, but I think, you know, like your example of study hall, um, you know, the head coach I work for right now is really big on choice. So yeah, I could have them studying when we're on the road for, you know, three times on the trip for an hour each each segment, or I can kind of say, hey, we have a block of time here. If you need, if you have studying to do, get some studying done. If you are done with it, go out, you know, go around the bay and go for a walk or, um, you know, right now it's COVID. So a lot of our activities are, those are the only two options. You can study (laughs) in your room or you can go outside and do something to decompress, (laughs) but um, just giving them more freedom and choice kind of, and in my mind, it's structured choice, right? So, I mean, we're not, we're not saying after the match, now go do whatever you want, free for all, Um, but just kind of letting them. Be an adult and make some decisions on how they manage their time.
1: Yeah, I want to linger on that first point you made for a second because that's really interesting. When you talked about the difference between telling them how to snap their wrist versus giving them the objective of where you want the ball to land, and then kind of letting their body figure out how to get there. Have you? Mm-hmm. Have either of you read the Inner Game of Tennis?
0: Uh, I actually haven't finished it all, but Brad gave it to me from my head coach from Western Oregon, and so I have read some of it.
1: Okay. Yeah. That book, uh, it's an awesome book. It's definitely worth reading. Um, and that's one of the main points is that he's this elite tennis coach who works with elite young tennis players. And one of the things he discovered was that when he started giving less directives to his players, that somehow they started performing better. So rather than telling them you need to, you need to, you know, swing, I don't, I don't play tennis. so I'm going to butcher this, but swing at this upward angle and snap your wrist or whatever he would say basically pay attention to how your racket feels as you hit the ball or uh, how your body is on the court and then visualize where you want the ball to go. And magically the, they would start to over time produce the correct movements without explicit instructions. And he made this great argument in the book about how oftentimes language when you're the coach and you're advanced and you give language to a player, you understand the kind of imagery and feeling that you're describing, but oftentimes the language doesn't translate into the actual action to the player. And I've noticed that Mm -hmm. when I was, you know, I'm not, I have very limited coaching experience, but I was a good shooter. And so I would try to teach shooting to the players on the team. And I would say, you know, do this, do this. And they just couldn't move their body in that way. It was almost like shooting is kind of like dancing. It's like a very rhythmic thing. And so, I would be, get frustrated because they wouldn't move like I wanted them to move. And then, and then after reading this book, I realized, okay, you were just throwing words at them that they did not connect with image, images right. and movements and it wasn't connecting. And, and, and you know, He argues that it's better just to show them and then say, here's the ball, right? Um, right? So I don't know if that resonates with you at all.
0: For sure. And one thing we used to use at Western Oregon a ton was the use of metaphors because mm. like, I don't know, have you ever passed a volleyball?
1: Yeah, yeah, really uh, pathetically, but I've tried, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, I mean, you don't have a ton of references with the verbiage that we would use, right? But if if I'm trying to get you to have your platform strong and straight, and that's the best way to redirect the ball off your platform, right? And I tell you, you know, it'd be the same as if you were trying to row a canoe or row a paddleboard or whatever it is with like noodles, versus having two strong oars that now all of a sudden you are creating direction and you know you can create angles and different, you know, predictabilities with it. And so sometimes using different metaphors are different. We like for defense, we say like be a catcher and try and get your body behind the ball instead mm-hmm. of trying to say, All right, well, you're gonna shuffle over and try and get the ball midline. You know, all of a sudden you just have the image of a catcher like shuffling and trying to get this ball midline to catch it. So we try and use different things that Kind of get their mind out of it so they're not overthinking it.
1: Yeah, I love that. It's a great example. Yeah. Is it, you resonate with any of that, Benjamin?
2: Yeah, I think uh, film is a great tool because, you know, they need to see themselves uh, and, you know, slow motion and as close as you can if it's a specific skill set where, like shooting that you described, uh, because they don't even potentially, you know, they don't even know what their body is doing right or wrong, good or bad. So, uh, the film is, is, you know, so important, so key. Um, because you, you both are touching on it, but there's, there's different ways for different athletes to get a great result. I mean, there are amazing shooters in basketball who shoot differently. Um, so there are some hard and fast rules that, that probably should be kept to, but, uh, you know, don't mess with, with something that's working. And If it's not, you know, just, show them film. Um, I like what Malia was saying about metaphors um, to describe what, what, you know, is actually necessary and what you want them to do. Um, So uh, that was really important um, and a good, um, you know, learning opportunity for me just, just to hear her. Um, But yeah, that's just film is, is really important that, that, that use and in individual skill set sessions, I'll take out my phone and just film them really close and then show them feedback immediately. I think that's been very helpful. Or, you know, have others in that group demonstrate the skill set. Yeah. You know, take yourself out of the situation and just – and then let them rep, 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 stop. If they're not getting it, slow it down. I think different speeds uh, are really important. You know, if it's a new skill set, you know, just breaking down one part, just one step. Uh, and then adding in the next and adding in the next, um, or just, you know, letting them balance in one position for a while. I think those are just breaking different skill sets down like that, uh, and getting better and better. Um, and one thing, you know, I'll add is, you know, you talked about, you know, something as you went on and coaching and developed and, and did a 180 uh, or as you put a 150, uh, potentially <laughs> and pivoted from, uh, I think I just talk a lot less. I think at the beginning. You know, and it's for for new coach is obviously, you know, only communicate what you really know, but don't feel like you need to talk a ton to prove to others that that you know what you're talking about. And I think it's led to being a better coach um, because they should be talking more. Uh, the, the student, um, you know, the athlete needs to assess themselves and have that opportunity to to look at the film, and tell me what you see. And then talk from there or, you know, what did you learn from that clip, you know, as opposed to just here's what you did right. Here's what you did wrong. Like let them think interactively. Uh, and I think, I mean, I like to learn better that way. And if if I like to learn that way and, you know, if you, you're a coach, you're a teacher, however, you like to learn better is, you know, there's different ways to teach. But uh, start looking for that and opportunities. Um, that's what I learned. Um, yeah. and I pivoted from. so.
1: Yeah, that's all fascinating. Yeah, I feel like I could already hit a volleyball better using that or analogy. i have to go try that.
2: <laughs> Just not lefty. Malia, uh, if, 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 really, uh, if you watch that. So. I'm
0: not a great left-handed surfer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what do you think, if you compare your own experience as a player to modern sports, what do you notice that some of your players are struggling with, whether within sports or with, the kind of external pressures that young people are going through. Is there something that jumps out to you? That's a consistent and significant struggle that young athletes are dealing with in modernity. Billy
2: Billy, outside influence is the number one. And I think that ruins a team so fast. uh, And it's so much more prevalent seemingly um, than, when you know, I think I was playing in high school. I mean, there's no real social media at the time and it's, Mm. it's just, and it's not, it doesn't just have to be social media, you know, it's parents uh, that are, you know, or family members who have the, the best intentions uh, and they only want what be- what's best for their own child, their own, ath- you know, the athlete. Uh, but teaching that aspect, you know, it's like, hey, here's how you shoot a jump shot or here's how you attack his own defense. What about, you know, outside influences that are going to lead to a player not sticking in their role that really helps the team or trying to take more shots or do something that they're not capable of or be against us as coaching and a coaching staff that takes coaching as well. And really is kind of more fulfilling having them being able to manage their outside influences uh, because that's something they're going to have to do for their whole lives. So figuring out ways to communicate that early and often before it becomes a problem and giving them different tools um, to, you know, say, hey, you know, appreciate what your family member or your friend says, but don't, you know, buy into it, uh, necessarily. And, and understand that the people that really know are the people that are here every day, the team, you know, the coaching staff that has your best interests, uh, in mind. Um, I think that's, that, that would be, that sticks out for me is, is even more prevalent now and how to handle that.
1: Yeah. I remember, uh, actually remember that clearly playing for you for that one season. Uh, you and Brady were very firm about that and that message came through clearly. And that always made sense to me that even though your family and your friends and the people who love you want the best for you, they're not in the locker room. They're not waking up with us at 5.30 a.m. So they really don't have a good understanding of what the team dynamics are, what you know your role should be. Malia, anything to add or another dynamic that young people are struggling with?
0: I think the, the increased um concerns around mental health and the stresses that you know being a student athlete today has versus you know like benjamin talked about like back when we were playing i definitely don't feel like there was there could have very well been a more increased level of mental distress but maybe it just wasn't as talked about but i still think that today there's just there's a lot more challenges around recovery so we, we have a performance team at utah which is comprised of you know sports scientists our strength coach our um, sports medicine our whole coaching staff our nutritionist um performance like we all meet weekly and make sure that we're kind of attacking the athletes um from a holistic perspective you know because there's not just one area that can kind of you know we were finding that we were actually causing more stress when each area was going to the athlete saying well you know, have you thought about this? Are you taking care of that? You know, and all of a sudden they were just feeling pulled in all these different directions when really these are all great resources that are there to make sure that they can perform at their best and be healthy while, while they do it. And so, um, you know, on the on the call, a lot of times it's about the mental stresses that they're having. And um, so for us, you know, we, we showed the team two pictures of recoveries and there's one where there's a bunch of athletes and they're all on their phones, just lounging around. And then there's another one where, you know, they were all off their phones. They were, some of them were like sitting quietly with their eyes closed. Some were on like Norma you know, different uh, sports medicine technologies to, to help the body, but just teaching them how to refresh their mind is almost like a new tool that they just, and I know you're big on this too, so I'm sure you can you can also echo this, but I just don't think they all have the skills to truly refresh. So even, you know, I'm guilty of this too. I come home and I get on my phone. I think scrolling is decompressing, but really it's not taking care of your body and your mind the way it needs to. Um, yeah. And so I think for them being, you know, student athletes carrying a huge load and then like Benjamin said, all these outside influences, especially at our level, people have such opinions on their performances um, and everyone's always watching. And so I just feel like helping them to refresh their mind is a big thing that... I think they're struggling with now more than ever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, like you said, and kind of in my wheelhouse and there's someone listening to this who is wondering just some very, I think the very simple um, principles for recovery, as far as I see it is of course a meditation practice of very deliberate sitting with your eyes closed is probably ideal that and like exercise but athletes already have that baked in so when you're talking about Mm -hmm. someone who's just a civilian (laughs) then you know moving your body or, or sitting in silence is perfect but as far as an athlete goes like like you said it's it's very tempting to think that doing nothing you know sitting with the tv on on instagram is resting but it's it's really not and you actually can feel this difference between even if it's like having a conversation like going out for a nice meal with your friends i don't know covid makes all this complicated but with everyone's phones away and you're in a real conversation that can be really rejuvenating or the difference between having the tv on while you're on your phone and actually watching a good tv show or a good movie with your phone away is actually more rejuvenating and this all comes from the the studies on you know just focus in general, is actually intrinsically pleasant and rejuvenating, and your, your brain is less active when you're engaged with something. So whatever, what it is, if it's reading or conversation or going for a walk in nature, watching a good movie, but doing one thing at a time is certainly more restful than being in this kind of haze of distraction that so many of us find ourselves in with all of our gadgets and, and stuff that we're, we're doing. And that's, you know, maybe especially difficult during lockdown, which hopefully we'll be back to some semblance of normal before long, but it's it's a good thing to consider these days, I think.
0: Right, for sure.
1: For sure. If your child and or children, I'm not sure how many children you plan to have, but if your children become athletes, what kind of lessons do you hope they'll learn through playing sports?
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: I go first. Uh, Wow. That's a good one. Uh, Well, if they choose to play sports, um, then probably just. I really hope that they take joy in, you know, the team success. Um, Mm. You know, and that's obviously more prevalent in, you know, team sport. Um, But so let's say it's a team sport, uh, that it's not just. You know about them and you know when when others are are performing well that they're excited, and I hope that they understand that that kind of snowballs and uh, the great teams have that uh, as as like a core value and just it's inherent it's part of their DNA so uh, that's what I hope because I think it's just more fun and enjoyable and a better learning experience if that's what what you're getting out of it so nice, nice, Malia. Hmm.
0: <laughs> um, you know, I hope that I hope that they find fulfillment in committing to something. You know, whether it goes well or not as an outcome. I really hope that they enjoy committing to something and working hard for something. And like Benjamin said, I, I do hope it's a team sport. I think I think giving with other people is something special. And um, just finding fulfillment that regardless of the outcome, that they Um, committed to something that's that's meaningful
1: nice that's great so one thing i really underestimated when i became a ga was how absolutely unbearably nerve-wracking it can be to be on the bench during a big moment in a (laughs) a big game (laughs) and how fucking hard it is to stay composed as a coach um in some way like it's different from being a player because as a player you feel like a little bit more direct pressure to do your job, but it's, it's in other ways it's easier as a player because you're lost in the motion and the synergy of being on the court. At least in basketball, when you're a coach, you're just you know I get so mad at the refs. I would get I was just kind of a head case sometimes, and um, and then like a timeout happens, you've got thirty seconds, and I, it was never me, but I, I would always watch you, you and Brady have to come up with a play that makes sense in that situation. And I was always blown away that you could even like think straight in those huge moments as a coach. Do you have any techniques for, or have you gotten better over time? H- how do you approach staying your own mental space during a big game? I guess, um, either one of you can take that to
2: start. Uh, um, Oh, go ahead. It
0: just makes me think <laughs> of the, so <laughs> the first time we ever made it to the Sweet 16 was I think only two years after I got to Utah and it was match point for the other team and we're in the huddle and our other associate head coach at the time was you know really confident he was a great coach he was like you said Billy like he just knew exactly what we had to do and he was so sure of himself Um, and I was you know still still green at this point and Beth was like, do you have anything and in front of the whole team? And I just remember, I, w- I was like, I think we should all take a breath. <laughs> and <laughs> and I was like, it was it was just like really what I felt. like Everyone's like tensions were so high and kind of like yeah. what Benjamin said, like you don't always have to pretend like you know all the answers to everything. But like, in that moment, I just felt like they had already gotten a ton of information and I just felt like right. we needed to all take a breath. Um, so that's yeah. definitely something that... I try and do now, like even like you said, when like your heart's racing, you know, you're in the heat of the moment, everything's kind of coming at you full speed. I just try and at least take one breath uh, at the timeout, um, And I try and I try and listen first to other people and see where we're at and then kind of go from there. So I think even as a head coach, um, I definitely will want to get the input of my assistants first to just give myself that, that second to kind of breathe and kind of take yeah. it all in and then kind of come up with a plan from there
2: nice nice and and you know some advice for anybody else who's going to coach you you can be you know a ball of emotion and going crazy on the inside (laughs) so (laughs) i maybe maybe i looked uh maybe stoic or or calm uh, at at certain points and maybe i was maybe i wasn't billy to you but uh (laughs) into the team Uh, but i assure you that Uh, On the inside, there was a lot more going on uh, and and a little bit more frantic than I I would show. Uh, You got to have a little bit of a poker face. I mean, because the players will take on, you know, your emotions as a coach. Uh, So you don't want them to be frantic uh, and you want to be relaxed and and they need to be reassured that you have the answer, um, whether you do or don't. (laughs) Um, So just speak with confidence. And it helps to be in situations uh, and have that experience. So... The first time, is you know, don't judge yourself or think that that's how it's going to be. You know, you know, it just you need more reps, and then after you've done it a couple times, uh, and and you learn from them, and you self-assess, you have a better chance of, of being calm and, and you know reserved and 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 thoughtful before you speak. Uh, so I think that's huge, yeah. and, and you want to um, you don't want to distract, you know, with the refs or throughout the game or or you know it's the last play because you know, you want your players thinking about how they, they win the next play. So you can keep that mindset. It's, it's easier said than done. Uh, and I've failed many times, but, um, I think you hit it on the head. Brady, that's his personality to kind of be calm and reserved. And I think learning from him was, was, was a huge uh, benefit. Um, so I think mean, yeah. that helped me out a lot.
1: Yeah. I feel like it's, it kind of reminded me of like, uh, being in a math test that I wasn't, quite prepared for and is not enough time to complete these math problems. And you get anxious and stressed to the point where you, your neurons just don't fire the right way. And I just all of a sudden can't even do basic math problems. And like, so like when you're that stressed, I feel like your cognitive abilities just decline. So it's finding a way to, and I actually remember practicing this during our championship run, Benjamin, like some of those playoff games. It's not like I had any, you know, I was pretty low down the, the, the advice chain for what we're going to run or whatever. But I remember consciously doing some of what I practice off the court. Like, okay, you've got to get your heart rate down a little bit here so you can think straight. And, you know, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really amazing thing that I think, you know, when you watch like the NBA and those big playoff games, there's probably a lot of coaches that are paddling underneath the surface and you don't really, you don't really yeah. see it. Like they've got that poker face going. So yeah, that's well, I,
2: Billy, I don't believe you've ever been in a math test that you didn't know all the answers. So, <laughs> no, um, <surprise>. but, <laughs> <yeah>.
1: <laughs> okay. Last one. What advice do you have for an athlete who's leaving high school, looking for a good fit in college and we can keep this a little bit more universal. I know with COVID everything's on top of its head right now, but, just any pillars, you know, principles that you think athletes should keep in mind when they're trying to find a good fit at the next level.
0: I think a good perspective to have is if, if your athletic experience got taken away from you, would you still enjoy being there? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say like that, the the reality of that comes true, but there's going to be hard days where you're, you know, really frustrated with your sport. You hate your coach. You, you, know your team and you're not getting along whatever the case may be and can you still find joy in the experience that is there whether it's the city whether it's the university itself the academic program you're in um, do you have other things that kind of support you through the the tough times that we know are inevitable with athletics uh,
2: can I expand on that just a little bit yeah uh so uh someone who put it really well was you know one of my first coaching mentors steve pratt uh, out of chicago and he he you know, was communicating with a, a recruit who was kind of blowing up at the time and getting a lot of interest in his, in his parents. And he just said to, to Malia's point is, would you be happy at that school with that staff in that program? If the worst was to happen, you know, you blew out your knee, could never play again. Would you want to be around those people? And do you feel like you could be the best person off the court there uh, and progress? But also he said, you know, is that also the, the, the program that can get you to your dream at the same point? Like, you know, kind of think about it both ways, best case scenario, worst case scenario. Is that where, you know, you kind of feel like you can be led to that position or be happy either way. So, um, I thought that was great advice.
1: Yeah, that is. Yeah. And then another, another thing
0: to think about with that is like, what kind of experience do you want to have? Because I think people are just so excited with the outcome of getting the scholarship or being offered a spot on a team in a program. So a lot of times, at least, you know, especially at our level, people just want to be in the Pac-12, but yeah. they aren't actually asking themselves, like, what experience did I want? Do so I wanted to be a starter and I wanted to compete in every point of every match the entire time in my career. And maybe that's not going to happen at the Pac-12 level, but if I you know, go to a mid-major, that does happen for me. And so I really have to ask, you know, athletes, what experience are you looking for? And making sure that their skill level will actually provide them that experience. And they all think that they can get there one day, but are you willing to sit on the bench for maybe two to three years before you actually become an impact player?
1: Nice. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. It's so hard, such a hard thing to convey to a young person. I remember, I remember going through the recruiting process and I was so enamored and blinded by the status of d1 or at least the highest level and the city and just i was you know i just wanted to impress the local community and it was hard to even imagine myself in another situation and that might have been part of the curse of just being in a small town and staying there my whole life like you just have no idea what life is like outside of there but yeah if any young athletes listening to this i think that's really good advice to to take on if, they're, if you're going through their recruiting process well good did uh got through a lot there did we miss anything
0: i don't think so but to your point billy this was really enjoyable and much more enjoyable than sitting on my phone or doing anything else a focused right. <laughs> <to laughs> time to talk and connect was really nice so thanks for having us
1: uh, yeah i enjoyed it a lot too it was super super fun so
2: well i yeah. will have to uh say my piece billy um, about you and, uh, what I got out of coaching you. Uh, so when I got into coaching, I thought, man, I can help a lot of people and, you know, just by being active in their life and helping them with basketball and on and off the court. And, oh, that'll be a great way to kind of, you know, have a legacy or just kind of just pay it forward or, you know, feel like I'm helping others. Uh, but I never thought, or realize how much being a coach I would learn from other coaches or from, you know, really players themselves. And, you know, if you're not the most, uh, you're, you're, you're up there. Uh, definitely in terms of what I've learned from you just uh, and just watching kind of what you've done after coaching or after playing, getting involved with the program, uh, both the GA uh, level, student manager level, uh, and then, you know, being the mental skills coach, and then just hearing about all your other activities and staying connected with you uh, has been very um, you know, inspiring and I've learned a ton. So, um, you know, I just just happy to see. I mean, that's that's one of the best parts about coaching, too, is just seeing how players develop. And to be honest, you know, coming to the program from Western Oregon, Brady, myself, Kyle, uh, and then Kenny and Dan, uh, the coaching staff joining up at Regis. It was your senior year. You know, you guys hadn't had a good record for a while. So in my mindset was move on, recruit over. These guys don't matter. You know, all the wrong things, you know, that I thought of right away. And, you know, recruit tougher players, right? Because I had mentioned earlier, you know, toughness wins you close games. But we had the toughest player on the team already. And we would – the program that has continued under Brady and all the other, you know, the staff that's there now uh, along with him, it's because of like your senior year, you know, one year was as impact, impactful as, as any of the recruits that we had. Uh, and it's a testament to you. You were the toughest player on our team that year. Uh, and what a pleasure. Um, and the foresight for Brady and the rest of the staff to say, Hey, you know, let's give these guys a chance and Billy can, can get it done. Uh, um, so, uh, glad to see, you know, you had a successful year. You always say, Oh, thank you. You know, I had a great time, but you know, you, you, you know, you pay it back. Um, you know tenfold so
1: well, thank you. That's, that's very, very kind of you to say. And I definitely, as if you heard anyone who's listening to this podcast, knows how grateful I am to you and Coach Brady and to the rest of the coaches for that special season. And yeah, it's uh, anyone on the outside, when you win nine games, you wouldn't think it's such a special <laughs> season. But I, I agree that you know what it did for me and my relationships to sports and then the friendship that you and I developed as, as coaches and getting to hang out with Malia and, you know, Kenny and Alexa, it's was just a really cool network that we formed there. And, um, it's cool to see that they've built on that season. And, um, well, we won, we won a championship in a couple years after that, which is, which is amazing obviously too. So, but thank you. That's, it's really nice of you to say, and it's great that we're still staying connected. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much as I had a really, really fun time talking to you both and um we'll have to do it again sometime and good luck with the rest of your seasons at westminster and utah and for anyone listening i'm going to link to both of your twitter accounts is that the best place to point to you um (laughs) and so you can find them there and um look forward to seeing how both of your careers progress and how you manage starting a family and going through all of that so it'll be fun to see
0: thanks billy
2: Yeah, thank you very much, Billy.
1: If you'd like to support me and the show, one of the best ways to do that is just to simply share it with someone who you think might like it. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this. The best way to stay in contact with me and my work is through my newsletter, which you can find at billyhansonnet forward slash newsletter. And my new book, Harder Than I Thought, Easier Than I Feared is now available for pre-order. And you can find that at billyhanson.net forward slash book and get links to Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other online stores. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next time.
2: It's the sauce.